0: On today's podcast, we'll be joined by marine biologist, shark conservationist, and star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Pig vs. Shark, Dr. Austin Gallagher. We're going to discuss tiger sharks with a taste for pork in the Bahamas, a remarkable survival story off the coast of Louisiana, and if we're lucky, you'll hear from the world's first shark beatboxer. That's coming up along with so much more on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. So, on this episode, I'm stoked to welcome a special guest, marine biologist and shark conservationist. He's also the star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Pig versus Shark, which we're going to get into in just a minute. Austin Gallagher, welcome to the show.
1: Luke, great to be back. You know, I always love chatting with you and, uh, yeah, super excited to dive in, talk all things shark, and uh, I'm just excited to be here, man.
0: I want to get more into that but let's establish your sort of credentials in the shark world what is your you know formal qualifications and what what is your day job
1: sure thing so my day job is the ceo of beneath the waves beneath the waves is a nonprofit research institute that uses cutting-edge science to advance ocean health I'm specifically focusing on things like threatened species shark conservation deep sea research blue carbon uh, and also creating marine protected areas we've been working uh, very significantly in the Caribbean region for about 10 years uh, in nine countries. And I have a, an unbelievable team uh, that, that pushes our mission forward. Uh, so that's really my day job. Um, it's diverse. I, I'm very excited because I am trained as a scientist. I have a PhD and, you know, I've been actively researching sharks and, and the marine environment for about 13 years now. Um, you know, published over 100 peer-reviewed papers, you know, helped translate some of that work into tangible, tractable, Defensible conservation outcomes, things like species protections and, and the creation of MPAs. Uh, just love being able to see the work be translated. And I was brought up as an academic scientist. That's how I cut my teeth uh, with you know expertise in things like fish biology and tracking and physiology, uh, and a little bit of environmental economics and policy. But uh, I realized, Luke, that you know the non-traditional path was was going to be my path, and that was you know not going to be a professor. Uh, that's a great position. That's a great job. You know, no, no, no shade on that. But you know, I wanted a little bit more freedom. I wanted to be able to explore, to create teams, to build things, to lean in heavily into media and content. Um, and it's just been a wild ride. So uh, that's a little bit about me.
0: So let's get to Blue Carbon and Seagrass later because I want to dive in a lot deeper. But I wanted to start out by asking you about pig versus shark because this was a, a super cool and really interesting documentary. So for our listeners who haven't seen it, can you set up the premise for us?
1: Would love to. And this really just speaks to how amazing tiger sharks are as a generalist, broad consumer. They eat so many different things and they are really the shark that is the most adaptive, flexible to, you know, change. They are crushing it right now in in many parts of the world. Their populations are actually stable or slightly increasing in some places. Of course, there are gonna be some places around the world where no shark is doing well, but it's actually one of the positive stories, and that's why I like focusing on them. And they never stop amazing me, which is why the pig story became so interesting. So back to the Bahamas, another place where uh, my team and I do research is in a place called the Exumas. I'm sure you've heard of it. being able to go to the Bahamas so many times, you know, you hear the word Exuma, and if you've been to the Bahamas, you've probably heard of the swimming pigs. And the swimming pigs are a phenomenon, not unlike shark diving is. You know, it's this animal that we don't, we're not brought up to love, but we've found a way to interact with them in a safe way that is really good for the animals and also really good for the communities that depend on those animals. And there are a number of pig colonies wild pigs we're talking you know charlotte's web stuff here those pigs that live on islands and keys in the exumas there's 365 islands in the exumas one for every day that's what they like to say down there and for so many years while we've been monitoring sharks in the exuma keys we'd drive our boat by these pig colonies and we'd see tourists coming up to them people can walk up you know get a photo feed them a uh, carrot or some bread and it generates like $450 million a year from the Bahamas. So, actually, like four times as much as shark diving. So, that's just. The sh- pigs generate $450 million a year? Half a bill.
0: Wow. That, that was some pretty smart placements of, uh, as, I mean, they were put there as a food source,
1: right? By original explorers? There, there's, there's a few different stories. And there's actually a great book called Pig Paradise that my friend Jeff Todd wrote on this very, you know, very story. And I encourage anybody to check it out and find it on Amazon. But. The thought from Jeff's story is that uh, a few pigs were brought down, you know, that were going to be slaughtered from one of the slaughterhouses in the Bahamas, Nassau, the capital of the Bahamas, you know, in the 80s or 90s. And, you know, somebody saw the pigs and said, I just want to keep a couple, you know, a few local uh, island caretakers. And, you know, they just continue to reproduce. And then they realized that people love these things when they stop by and then they just built a tourism product off of it. It's, it's really quite phenomenal that's (laughs) amazing i
0: I always thought they'd been there longer than that Uh, because you've talked about their sort of evolutionary or seemingly evolutionary adaptation to having like turned up noses and being able to swim i thought that'd take a little longer
1: yeah maybe you know that's a good point luke i didn't think of that um you know sometimes evolutionary traits can can change like within a few generations yeah you know um Sometimes it takes a lot longer.
0: All it takes is the, yeah. uh, the best swimming pig with a, a weirdly upturned nose to be the, the guy that ruts with all the other ladies on the island and,
1: you know, get a bunch of big-nosed pigs. That's right. Well, people love to, to believe that just because you don't see something happening, then it means it, it doesn't happen. And as it relates to tiger sharks and pigs, for so many years, I drove by those colonies wondering, are the tiger sharks, you know, going after these pigs? Because they're swimming right by them. I've seen it, you know, and and we have receivers in these areas that show residency and and connectivity between all of these places, including where the pigs are found. So we were wondering, could the tiger sharks be utilizing the, the pigs as a food source? Now, if it was something that was common, we would hear reports and stories from these caretakers and the tourism operators that we see this all the time, you know, go to South Africa and you can hear stories or sometimes even witness a white shark taking down a seal. Uh, on those colonies, kind of a similar concept, but the pigs don't have to go in the water to feed. They do go in the water to cool off several times a day. Uh, They are disgusting animals, you know, in terms of just their oils and, you know, secretions. So certainly provide sensory cues that a tiger shark that's swimming by could pick up on. And when they're in the water, they actually are really good swimmers, but they have a lot of vulnerability because they can't really dive and they have a really big belly that's exposed. So I wanted to investigate this I wanted to figure out, you know, finally, let's get some evidence as to whether or not the sharks are actually feeding on the pigs. So we launched an investigation, and we ended up making a show around it. And we did some really cool science, and what we found was amazing.
0: Yeah, and so let's jump straight to the science and probably the the most poignant part of it. I mean, you showed how, you know, blood could be, you know, attracting sharks a long way away. I think the same could go for, you know, oils and effluent and all the other waste from the pigs sort of swimming around and perhaps even the noise as well, the splashing would bring the sharks in. But the, uh, the coolest piece of science I think it did was the cloacal swabs. Walk us through that.
1: Sure. So the cloaca is the part of the shark on the bottom that is literally the passageway inside and outside of the animal. So all of the excretion, Uh, happens there. It's also the same area where all of the fertilization, you know, sexual reproduction happens for sharks because sharks, um, tiger sharks have sexual reproduction and like many other species of shark do. So the cloaca is going to be pushing out crap, essentially. And anything that the shark is eating, there might be some, you know, pieces of that, you know, on the inside of the cloaca as it comes out. And we know that something like DNA is so small and you can't see it. So, Uh, If there's food bits uh, on the inside of the cloaca, there's probably some DNA from whatever that shark has been eating. So in order to figure that out and actually evaluate our pigs on the menu, we did some swabbing of the cloacas with some, you know, medical grade Q-tips and just a few swabs inside of the sort of skin lining there. And we can put that through a few different processes to genetically isolate any DNA that has the signature of a pig. And on our research vessel, the RV Tigris, we have a portable uh, machine that can actually amplify any pig DNA or any DNA from anything that that might actually be there. It's called a PCR, and it stands for polymerase chain reaction. And I actually mentioned this in the show, but it's a term that I think everybody on the planet that's over six years old is probably familiar with in the last couple of years because of COVID-19. How many times have we gotten a PCR test? And that's the same thing that's happening there is they're swabbing our nose, just like we swabbed the calica. And then that lab technician takes that sample and they basically blast that sample with a known target sample of the COVID-19 gene and then they amplify on the PCR machine, the polymerase chain reaction machine, uh, to visualize whether or not there is COVID-19 in your nasal swab or if there is pig DNA in that clinical swab. So it's basically you know, a deep investigation genetically into what's happening there, but actually pretty simple and really straightforward, pretty easy to do. And we did that on the show. So we actually obtained colloquial swabs from, I think, five or six different tiger sharks. We also got a few hair clippings from, from pigs. I don't know if that made it into the show. But just to show those controls, this is what a pig looks like. And, you know, I'll just pause for a second. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure on us as scientists to deliver the big result on these shows, you know. And, you know, sometimes as producers, there's a story that's really exciting that we want to tell. But we have to just let the science tell the story itself. And it's always really exciting when you get the result that you're kind of hoping for, even though that might seem a little subjective, but the, the, the exciting result. I was so excited when I saw the positive hit for pig DNA being in two of those tiger shark samples. So this proves that pig DNA are in the cloaca of tiger sharks. Now, does this mean that they're eating them? Not necessarily. It could, it could mean that, The tiger shark just took a big gulp of water and had pig DNA in it, you know, but what this does demonstrate Genetics never lie. That's why, you know Is he the father type thing, you know, that that never lies, you know, when you watch those shows, you know, those talk shows It demonstrates conclusively that pigs and tiger sharks are interacting, you know, in that way and uh, just pretty amazing to us. So we're really excited to get that yeah. result on the show. Um,
0: what's your gut say? Do you think the tiger sharks are actively predating on the live swimming pigs? Or do you think they're perhaps opportunistically getting a carcass whenever one might die? Um, how do you think that's really happening?
1: I think they are. And, you know, I took...
0: You, you think they're going after the live swimming pigs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. 100%. Yeah. We just don't see it. Um, they but when are they doing that then because you know tourists are there all day long we would have heard these stories do you think it's something that's happening perhaps at night
1: i think a lot of it happens at night low light conditions i think yeah. that they i think that the pigs are pigs are actually really smart they're actually smarter than dogs incredibly smart animals uh, again it's kind of one of these interesting paradoxes it's an animal that we don't give a lot of credit to but it's really smart and does you know like sharks you know people are afraid of them but they're actually really really um mm-hmm intelligent animals. So the pigs that are older and are more mature and they have experience, I'm pretty sure that they know, probably don't want to wait out too far, you know, and these animals can remember things. They can learn. Sharks can learn too, by the way. Um, so I think the bigger ones would be harder to take down anyway. And I think the bigger ones probably wouldn't wait out too far. Now the, the youngsters, the piglets, the teenagers, you know, they do stupid stuff just like with us and humans. So the little ones probably go out. And I think it's those, the tiger sharks will try and go after. Um, An animal that goes out a little too far, a pig that takes an unnecessary risk. I don't think that it happens often. I don't think a kill happens often, you know, because the operators, the tourism caretakers, they would see the numbers dropping. But again, like I said earlier, just because you don't have the conclusive evidence of it happening doesn't mean that there are attempts. You know, most, like I said, with the turtle, you know, killing a wild animal is not easy. If you're a predator, it's never easy. Uh, the, the job of a predator in nature is, is a tough one. And, um, you know, think about a white shark, the success rate that they have, you know, is like 40, 50% max, you know, on those seals and the sharks will actually stop those white sharks off South Africa will stop hunting seals when their success rate drops below a certain you know threshold and they'll just move on to something else. Tiger sharks the same way. So, I do think it does happen. I do think the sharks are going after them regularly. Uh, I took some shade from, you know, some of the people in the diving community or sort of these renegade, I'm not going to name names, but these renegade, you know, operators who are, oh, I saw the show, that's not happening, it's not happening. It's like, oh, well, everybody, you're entitled to your opinion. You should have your own opinion on it. My opinion is based on my own observations, you know, spending lots, lots of time down there, seeing it, I think having a pretty good knowledge of the animals. Uh, and doing the investigations like we did on pig v. shark with the genetics. So uh, I do think it happens. I think it's rare, but it's an exciting thing nonetheless to kind of think about.
0: Yeah. Do you think that, um, I mean, in looking at that and with the abundance of food availability there and the fat content of the pigs and and everything like that, do you think it's fair to say that tiger sharks haven't yet really figured out that this could be a primary food source? Because you got to imagine that That's pretty easy pickings for him versus tearing into a a great big shelled turtle.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I I think that, you know, until you have a really good piece of steak, you're probably not going to fall in love with steak. Yeah. You know, so I think the same could be said for, you know, a a piece of pig. And trust me, it was really difficult to uh, avoid, you know, all of the pig jokes on the show. (laughs) You know, it's okay to have a few.
0: I think our producer counted something like a dozen pig puns in there. Um, I I think he started doing a drinking game with it or something.
1: There were like double that, you know, on the first cut. So (laughs) I was lucky to get it down by a little bit. It was a fun show. It was a great
0: show to watch. I I especially loved your beatboxing and the uh, the rapping from – how did that come about? There was a bunch of like random shots. And I had to imagine you guys walked onto the beach and saw a bunch
1: of tourists and tour operators and like, hey, you want to be on TV? Is that how that kind of went down? That's how that went down. So there's – uh, like I said, there's a bunch of different colonies where these pigs are found. And the main colony was, uh, it's at a place called Big Majors in the upper northern part of the Exuma Keys. And that is the prime location you saw on the show where there was, you know, a bunch of boats. And, you know, there's a couple hundred people a day that, that come in there from Nassau. You know, it's a 90-minute boat ride. You know, other places in the Bahamas just to see those pigs. Yachts pull up, you know, what have you. Resorts in the Exumas, et cetera. And we were literally just men on the street, you know, asking people questions. And it was kind of fun to, to get that perspective, the beatboxing, um, notorious beatboxing moment happened at one of the smaller pig colonies. That's the closer to our research hub further South in the Exumas. And I'm really fortunate to work with so many great local operators. It's a really important thing for me. And I, I really was pushing to have them involved in the show and to, you know, be featured and chartered. That's these are their resources. We're just visiting there and I want to come back and I want my gear to be looked at. And, you know, I want to be welcomed when I do work in in foreign countries. And the way you do that is by building relationships. And there's a group called Exuma Water Sports that has been, you know, the leading uh, group in the Exumas for taking care of these pigs and taking people on excursions almost every day of the year. They have a couple of the their own colonies. And then they also visit the big colony there and they are real stewards of these pigs. They feed them really well. They do bring food onto the colonies. They do bring them water. Uh, they bring them shade sometimes cause they can get pretty, you know, sunny on some of these, uh, you know, keys and islands. And my friend, Justin Lightborn, who is, you know, one of the sort of principals of Exum water sports, great guy, a lot of fun to be around and, you know, yeah, loves his music just like I do. And, you know, whenever we're cruising around, the, the keys were always blasting tunes. And, you know, it just happened organically. I can't even remember how the beatbox happened, uh, but it just did. I never thought of making it into the show. Honestly, I've been beatboxing uh, as a hobby. I don't know if you would call it a hobby, but. I've always been pretty good at it, to be honest, uh, you know, and I just kind of enjoy it. And it's not something I've ever really shown to people on a stage like that. Like a lot of my friends know know about it. But, you know, on the show, it just happened. They started rolling. We did it. It was fun. I uh, didn't know. I was like, this is either going to make it into the show or this is not going to make it into the show. You know, and <laughs> it did. And you know what, man? I, I, that's just who I am. So I just want to show the true version of myself at all times. The scientific side, the funny side, the lighthearted side. You got to have fun when you're doing your, your job. You got to have fun when you're doing science, and um, sometimes you just got to break down a beatbox and, and keep it interesting. All right, that's uh,
0: I hadn't expected you to to stand your ground that hard on um, on the enjoyment and history and persona that is Austin Gallagher, the beatboxer. You want to rip out some
1: now? Sure, let's do it. I mean, I don't know how good this uh, you know. Well, this is a good mic, but I don't know if there's going to be popping. But I'll throw down just like a couple bars for you here pfft 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 <laughs> That's awesome, man. There you go. Just, just a couple measures there for you. Um, you, you got to get on the,
0: uh, I think I was showing my six year old yesterday. She started beatboxing for some reason. I think, you know, her mom's a singer and they've been like doing stuff together and I showed her a beatboxing competition on YouTube or something. And, and she was like, Whoa, you got to get yourself on one of those yeah. and just be the the shark beatboxer. I, I think there's a market for it.
1: I like doing stuff for the first time. There, there yeah. is a market. I like doing stuff for the first time. It's more interesting that way. And, um, you know, sometimes you get skewered when you say you're the first and you're not, but I have pretty good confidence that that was probably the first time a shark scientist beatboxed on a shark week. I'm pretty sure.
0: You're one of those guys who I follow with interest because you're, you're kind of a well-rounded marine biologist as far as I'm concerned. You know, you're, you're involved in the academia, you're involved in sort of the TV side, and and the work that you do is is backed by science, uh, which I really appreciate. And then you're also out there doing policy work as well. So you're a pretty busy guy. What's got you going these days?
1: Really appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, I, I love being sort of diverse in how I approach things and... I always sort of took the alternate path professionally. It hasn't been the easiest move, but anyway, I guess it's just you got to be yourself, you know? To your point, what's got me going nowadays, uh, it's been uh, a real big focus on sharks and this concept called blue carbon. Have you heard of blue carbon before? I've only peripherally.
0: uh, You'll be educating me as well.
1: Well, it's really exciting, Luke, because blue carbon is a term that relates to all of the carbon, you know, from carbon dioxide that is trapped and stored in the ocean. And this is largely done through plants, photosynthesis from things like seagrass, salt marshes, and mangroves, which as you know, are, you know, critical for the survival of so many different fish species, but also sharks. And uh, our organization has been doing work, uh, throughout the Caribbean for, you know, many, many years, obviously most notably a place like the Bahamas a place that, you know, very well, and that you've spent decades doing work in and Through our long-term work on tiger sharks, actually, you know, about five, six years worth of work, we uh, were led by these individual sharks into these expansive underwater seagrass meadows. And these seagrass meadows hold massive amounts of carbon in the soil forever, about four to eight times more carbon in the soil than rainforests. And the tiger sharks guided us into these expansive meadows we had no idea existed. We mapped it up from space, and we made the discovery of the world's largest seagrass meadow—93,000 uh, square kilometers. It was under our noses the entire time in the Bahamas. And I've been working very closely with the government of the Bahamas uh, to help them uh, and support them in their initiatives to, you know, basically create protections around these ecosystems and and eventually drive resources through carbon credits to help build a more resilient. Uh, community.
0: So, why is that important? Like, if you take sort of broader view, everyone hears about global warming and carbon sinks and, and carbon retention, and everything like that. Why is having a resource like the seagrass important?
1: Sure. So, seagrass naturally uh, traps and stores that carbon from photosynthesis coming out of the atmosphere. It falls into the ocean, and that's what those plants do. With you know shallow access on the sandbanks there and you know they have the sun so they just pull that carbon dioxide in they store it why that's important is it's a nature based solution to climate change there are natural processes out there that do a pretty good job of actually silently quietly uh sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and if we were to release those billions of tons of carbon that are trapped uh, in the bahamas in their in their seagrass soils that would certainly contribute to added greenhouse gas emissions. So that's one really important component of it. Uh, And the reason why the Bahamas seeks to benefit greatly from this, Luke, is because there are many corporations uh, around the world, including big corporations like Warner Brothers Discovery, that are very excited about sustainability and looking at things like carbon neutrality and offsetting their carbon footprints. And they can do that by investing in projects like the one that we've been helping build in the Bahamas. So these big corporations will buy carbon offsets, and those offsets will be used to protect these places like the seagrass meadows. What's really exciting about this story, bringing it back to the sharks, is that the tiger sharks guided us into this discovery. And because the tiger sharks have been protected in the Bahamas for so many years, you know, almost 30 years now, we have been able to go in as a research group and collaboratively with local stakeholders and almost study like the ancient processes that have been happening for millennia, you know, millions of years in the Bahamas. So it really shows a, a beautiful story. This is what my final point is, is that if you protect the sharks, you can protect the people.
0: Now I'm fascinated about this whole blue carbon concept. Um, so let's give people some idea of the scale. Um, so, Looking from space down, or perhaps it's better to relate it to the actual effectiveness of the seagrass versus, say, the Amazon rainforest, but is there a comparison between the two you can make?
1: Blue carbon is a really exciting term and seagrass ecosystems are in general, you know, four to eight times more effective at storing that carbon. What's really interesting about seagrass as it relates to comparing them to rainforests is they don't burn. You know, that's one of the really big challenges we have with these incredible lungs of our planet in places like the Amazon burning down and releasing all that carbon and also the ecosystem service, the thing that these plants and animals naturally do to benefit humanity, those just disappear when they're burned. That doesn't happen with seagrass because it's, well, underwater. One of the other things that's significant about the Bahamas discovery in terms of scale and size, to your point, Luke, is that this is visible from space. Uh, you can actually see it from the International Space Station. You can see the shallow banks of the Bahamas. The Bahamas literally means Bahamar, shallow seas in Spanish. So that was given when all of the you know, Spanish explorers and, and explorers from Portugal were coming over and exploring um, you know, the Caribbean region. And they ran aground and because they weren't good at nautical maps and charts, and they ran aground in these shallow, you know, sandbanks. This is where Tiger Beach, for example, is on the edge of one of these sandbanks, the little Bahama Bank. And, you know, of course, look no further. Where there's tiger sharks is going to be seagrass and, and sort of vice versa. So these apex predators and these, you know, plants that nobody really cared about for so long, you know, live in this incredible ancient balance. The tiger sharks. Uh, are stewards of the seagrass because they scare and eat turtles, which would otherwise overgraze and just crush those seagrass meadows. So they do a a lot of work to keep those uh, ecosystems intact, sucking that carbon in. The size of the discovery we made in the Bahamas, or I should say the tiger sharks made as well, got to give them props, 93,000 square kilometers. So for frame of reference about the size of Maine in the United States, and for all of our European listeners, that's twice the size of Switzerland. Uh, this is the largest in the world by about two x, um, beating the Great Barrier Reef seagrass meadow, you know, by about two times. Wow!
0: Now, what is the actual process for how? carbon gets absorbed by these grasses. So I can imagine someone thinking, cool, you've got this grass, it's underwater, it's not breathing air, we're polluting the air, there's carbon going to the air. How does that transfer happen that it enters the ocean and therefore can get sucked up by the grass?
1: There are natural processes um, that happen every day in our ocean that we cannot see, that they're you know involving small, small, small sized atoms and molecules floating through the water. And there's something called the carbon cycle. I don't have to get too deep into it, but there is a natural flux of carbon that happens from the interaction between air and sea right where those waves are. There's a lot of carbon that's naturally coming down, falling down. You have things like phytoplankton and, and zooplankton that are all contributing and eating. They are also part of the carbon cycle and they're also carbon. They eventually just fall down and find their way to the flowering plant portion of the seagrass, the blade, essentially. It looks like a piece of grass. So those seagrass blades are reaching out to the sun because they want energy, that's how they acquire energy. Photosynthesis, another one of these you know, ancient processes that we learn about in middle school and high school. And literally, uh, the carbon dioxide and the carbon molecules and the carbon elements you know, in various stages will actually fall onto those blades. They'll be sequestered by the plant, pulled through the, the circulatory system, if you will, of the plant down into the roots. Uh, transported Uh, there's these things called xylem and phloem that transport water nutrients down and they'll store them in the the roots of these seagrass meadows forever and this the the roots of these seagrass meadows are so thick so dense that there's not a lot of room for decomposers there's not a lot of um, organic processes that are happening down there that would you know translate, move and have animals eating, moving that carbon. So the carbon stays in an organic form forever attached to the root system. So, you know, next time you go to Seagrass Meadow or for all our listeners, if you want to see what that looks like, you can Google Seagrass Meadow, you know, cross section, and you'll see this beautiful, almost one meter, three foot long root system. That is just another micro world beneath the waves.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you with, I mean, you've got such a, um, a Wealth of knowledge on, you know, shark migratory habits and also, you know, the tiger sharks, particularly out at Tiger Beach and stuff like that. Um, Recently on the show, we had a a guy named Robert Fly Navarro uh, who came on. And I don't know if you've heard about him. He's the guy who was promoting the shark fishing tournament uh, here in Florida. And um, he he brought up a few things that I thought would be best answered by, you know, an expert. Um, One of them were that... um, the the shark diving activity was creating a, a Pavlov's dogs type scenario where, you know, they the dinner bell would ring, they'd come in, they'd get fed, and that was creating a residency that was becoming a problem in the area. Um, we don't have to dive too hard into the arguments that we had. I basically said it was nonsense, um, but I'd be curious to hear from you with your knowledge migratory patterns if our effect as shark divers, as provisioning,
1: as chumming, is having any long term Effects on their migratory routes. Happy to dive into it. Um, I definitely have a, an opinion on it. Uh, I've done some research into the effects of feeding and tourism practices on shark behavior, and I think I have a pretty good understanding of the overall shark diving space. And I do on I do know you know that situation, that conflict between the fishermen, and the divers in South Florida. So, all things considered, anytime you put a reward in the water, and for these wild predators, like I said earlier. Killing a fish or killing a pig or another turtle or a shark, it's not easy work. So a free meal is obviously very enticing for these animals. That's number one. Number two, sharks can learn. They can be conditioned. Sharks can be conditioned. And that's been proven for you know, 50, 60 years now. And I've seen it you know, places like Tiger Beach that um, animals do associate to the primary feeding sites uh, on a daily basis, they'll, you know, follow the boats, they can pick up on the cues, and they will change their daily behavior to match when those rewards are being offered. That does happen. The data says it. That's not a long-term effect. In terms of long-term effect, are they changing their migrations? No, there's no data to support that. Is it changing their overall energetics? No, there's been some energetic work and metabolic work that shows that the food rewards most likely don't meet the needs of these animals on a daily level or a monthly level. Now, the only challenge there is, is you know everybody who's involved in the shark diving industry, they love sharks. And I love those guys too, by the way. I love shark diving. They're some of my closest friends, and I love going diving for sharks. Not everybody has the same set of principles. You know, it's a, a voluntary type management. There aren't really any guiding rules for a lot of these operators. You know, in federal waters, there are some. that are going to be very conscious and they only feed the sharks. You know, one or two scraps each, and then there are going to be some that dump every crate. You know, in South Florida, uh, after a dive is over there is a difference between those two things. So I think responsible shark divers, and I know most of them are, would act in a way, and they do know the animals really well, by the way, they would be acting in a way to limit or restrict any type of, you know, long-term effects that they could impose on those animals. I do think the sharks are, are naturally found there. They are naturally found there. And there's also a lot of fishing that happens there too. So let's just call a spade a spade, how different is it if you're on a fishing charter and you're dumping a bunch of chum in the water, you're catching fish, you're catching live bait, you're stringing fish onto, you know, a hook and these fish are twitching and, you know, some of the, and also I like working with fishermen. I like working with fishermen they're a really important part of my, you know, overall research program all over the world. But, you know, fishermen go to, you know, really important lengths to try and catch the fish that they want. Sometimes they even will, you know, poke the eyes out of the fish or they'll string them through the tongue and, you know, make it seem like that fish is alive and they will do whatever it's possible to attract, you know, the target that they're after to the boat. How is that any different than, you know, putting a few pieces of fish in the water to dive with a shark? Is it possible to actually compare the two? Yes, but it's not easy. All things considered to wrap this you know assessment up i think that shark diving in south florida probably has a small effect on the the daily weekly residency of the sharks but i don't think it's having long term effects i think that the animals are still going to go in their natural migrations there's a reason why the shark divers are going there in the first place because it's where the sharks are naturally found cuz they were there yeah, yeah. exactly
0: <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario that's being presented in uh, in the the wrong direction i think particularly as we're dealing with sites that were like, it's a wreck site, right? Fishermen have been going there for much, much longer than the shark divers. Totally. All that effect of a boat attracting sharks because of wounded dying fish on the end of a line has been happening for a lot longer. And, you know, the shark divers have gone and and opportunistically taken advantage of that, of course, because, you know, it's fun to dive with sharks and now we know where they are, but it, it didn't happen the other way around.
1: It didn't. You know,
0: they've, They've been associating with sites for much, much longer than we've been down there, you know, chumming them and taking photos.
1: Completely, completely. And, you know, the other point that we can end on on this, and we can keep going, but is that these animals were there originally. And, you know, we have to just find a way to to live in harmony. Everybody has a right to use the ocean. Everybody has a right to enjoy the ocean. I'm not anti-fishing. I'm anti-shark fishing, (laughs) but I'm not anti-fishing. You know, I'm not anti-hunting. There are ways to interact with these resources sustainably in my opinion, fishing for sharks, killing sharks is not a sustainable thing. It can, I don't think it can be. I also think it's just morally and ethically wrong. I don't want to be seen as a species. When an alien uh, group lands on earth and you know we're all dead and we're just a bunch of bones and dust, they're excavating us like in Prometheus. I don't want them to see signs of us killing sharks. I don't want them to see dried shark fins in the desert. You know, It's not a legacy I think we want to leave as a species. These animals are so important. They do so much for us. We're still just learning what a lot of that looks like now.
0: So when the aliens do come, what do you want them to find?
1: I would love the aliens to see beautiful, preserved, large skeletons of sharks of all species indicating that, you know, when they perished for whatever reason, maybe it was another asteroid that they were, they were intact and they weren't, you know, cut up in a bunch of different pieces.
0: So do you think we as a human population, I mean, we don't know when the the earth's going to die and the aliens are going to come and survey our wreckage. But
1: in sort of present day, are we
0: getting closer or further away from a reality where sharks and their populations in our oceans are treated properly?
1: I'm an optimist, Luke. I think we're, we're getting closer to it. I really do. I, I, I'm seeing lots of positive signs. We know what we need to do. We just need to convince people that it makes sense and it makes economic sense you know, to, to protect sharks. And we're getting closer to that. So yeah, I'm very excited about the future.
0: So you think the the pessimists who are saying you know there's there won't be sharks in the ocean for my kids to see, um, you know that's that's pretty short term thinking, but you can understand where they're coming from given some of the rhetoric they're hearing. Do you think that's a reality?
1: No, I mean I don't. I think that the biggest threat to the ocean is if we lose hope, and it's tough out there for some people, you know. And when you hear negative news, sometimes it makes you believe it or not feel good about it. So I would like to focus on the success stories. I think that. Uh, sharks will always be around, but we have a lot of work to do still to make sure that they are healthy and abundant for future generations.
0: Before we wrap up, I wanted to uh, touch on a story that I saw because it, it it was kind of fascinating to me. Is this uh, three guys that got stuck out on the water? Uh, they got stung by jellyfish. They, you know, their boat sank, and they're clinging onto kind of a makeshift raft out of coolers and stuff. And uh, they were saved. Everyone was fine, thankfully. But in the time that they spent in water, they were getting harassed by black tip sharks, apparently, you know, three to four foot long black tips that were trying to attack them. I thought that was kind of unusual being that they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, they're off an oil rig, so they're they very deep and offshore and getting harassed by a species of shark that isn't typically thought of as
1: going after stranded sailors drifting around in the water.
0: Did that strike you as unusual?
1: Totally. When I was reading that article, I thought that it was going to be, you know, uh, Tiger shark or dusky shark or something like that that was harassing them. Yeah, and black tip, you know, you never hear about that one. You know, going after people, especially they're small, they're darty, they're really kind of skittish. So, yeah, it makes you wonder what was really going on there. But animals are pretty perceptive, and I think from the article, it showed that the life preserver, the life vest, had been you know hit a few times by the sharks, and there were some teeth marks on them. So, yeah, you know, it was red. It's floating. These are. Weird looking things to sharks that might actually suggest, okay, this is something that's dead, that is going to be easy for me to go consume. So they went and checked it out. So I'm actually not surprised they went after the, uh, the life vest and they didn't actually from according to the article, there weren't any like major bites on the, on the humans
0: no I was, I was actually wondering if it was just a i mean these guys are fatigued they're they're drifting around in the water they you know they don't have any dive gear and it's the middle of the night I, I wondered if perhaps it was you know a school of silkies or something that that drifted past i mean those guys've i've seen them go after divers and I've, I've I've seen a diver get bitten by them you know perhaps perhaps it's just you know a similar species that they got in the middle of and I could see that happening black tips unusual but not not, I guess, outside the realms possibility. They're a formidable predator for sure.
1: For sure, yeah. I'm a surprised. I'm glad the guys made it out of there. You know, obviously, yeah. a really cool story for them to
0: to share. For sure. Uh, so, what's going on at Beneath the Waves? What's what's next for you? Is That this uh, blue carbon is your primary focus.
1: Uh, blue carbon's emerged as one of the the big you know kind of tentpole things for us. You know, we're still doing work in the deep sea. Um, we're expanding work into a lot of different countries. Next big thing for us here is uh, we have a deep sea expedition coming up uh, before the end of the year, but I'm actually going to the desert in Egypt, which is you know, probably the last place you'd think you'd find a, a marine biologist, but I'm heading there in about a week for the UN Climate Change Summit, which is known as COP27, stands for Conference of Parties, 27th, so the 27th edition. And we are going with the Bahamas delegation in support of their uh, work in blue carbon and climate resilience. And we'll be presenting to delegates and heads of state on you know, the progress that we've been able to make on the science side supporting the Bahamas and other and other countries, but focusing on the Bahamas. And it'll be really great to be able to tell the same story that I shared with you, Luke, at the beginning of, you know, the sharks kind of helping guide us into these blue carbon hotspots and and how these things are connected and, and how these countries that are bearing the brunt of climate, you know, uh, effects, but really not polluting. So how these small island developing states and, and places in the Caribbean can can benefit in the long run. So that's a big focus for us as we as we conclude the year. Oh, it's
0: amazing. Well, if you don't hear it enough, you're doing a bloody great job, mate. I mean, from what I see, you're using, you know, smart science and publicity to propel you into what seems to be perhaps not necessarily a political career, but you're getting involved in the politics of saving, you know, the world and and – Doing things like making us aware of this, you know, massive resource that we have under the ocean that can really help reduce the carbon the planet is uh, subject to, and you're doing it with uh, with quite a, a dignified air about you and solid science. So kudos to you, mate. I appreciate
1: it. Thank you, man. Oh, that's super nice. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I feel like I'm kind of becoming more of a lobbyist nowadays. But if it's if it's an excuse to be able to talk about the importance of sharks and and uh, and how we can be better harmonized with our planet it's all good you know i'm, I'm having a lot of fun and yeah uh, you know shark week always comes back to shark week because it's like you know you want to share the incredible nature and excitement about these animals and what a better place well
0: while you're at that conference i dare to bust out some shark beatboxing and uh, become the the hit of the entire conference i'm sure it'll have people talking forever yeah or i might get banned from the bahamas forever but either way we'll go for it ah They won't ban you. They're they're up for it. All right, mate. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks, Luke. See you later, man.
0: Well, that was Dr. Austin Gallagher. And I I love chatting to that guy because he is so extremely knowledgeable and he shows exactly how so many focuses of scientific activity can come together and be centred around one sort of trophy animal and for him that's a shark and we're discovering so many things so from a doing a show like pig versus shark where some of the brilliance of that shows can be summed up with they might find themselves hogtied by some piggish predators you know there's always room for a good pun but a, a show like that can show people that the sharks and the pigs are interacting and then the actual work that Austin is doing in following these sharks around and seeing what they're doing has led to the discovery of this massive area of seagrass that desperately needs more study and protection. But understanding now that seagrasses are so much more efficient at being a carbon sink than even the trees that we desperately try to protect from the Amazon rainforest, for example. And this is just one example of a massive area of seagrass that is abundant uh, throughout the world and needs protecting. And you know who's protecting those seagrasses? Sharks. So if we kind of like tie it all together, we've got scientists like Austin who are focusing on protecting sharks, but really what they're doing, the effect that they're having on this planet, is educating us about an animal that just by nature of doing what it does is actually helping protect the entire planet. So this is another example of where we can say, hey, if you've ever thought of sharks as just a big bitey fish that you need to be scared about, we get it. But there's a lot of work being done that shows that they are much, much more important to everybody on this planet than just the people who enjoy diving with them or fishing around them or perhaps even fishing for them. You know, they are a necessary part of the ocean ecosystem. And we need that ocean ecosystem to be healthy and thriving and abundant to sustain life on this planet as we know it. So if you've ever needed a reason to care about sharks and not think of them as just another big, by the animal, then the protection and the, the thought that they are out there every single day protecting you and your environment and your quality of air and everything just by being who they are, well, you know what? It's a pig deal to me. Don't go baking my heart. And okay, that's it for today's episode. I want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics. We'll talk to top scientists and experts and learn about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. Thank you for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon.